Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're too kind, too kind. Well, as, well, that was cool. As Pastor Brandon said, uh, I'm a good friend of his. We were um, both doing church plant residencies at the same time. I was at Epiphany Fellowship of Camden. He was at Epiphany Fellowship in Philly. And um, I'm seeing as your anniversary is coming up, our three-year anniversary is March 22nd. So we're a little head in the same boat. But we are really, really excited to be here. You guys are very fortunate. Um, Pastor Brandlin. Brandon is a godly guy. He loves the Lord. He loves his wife, loves his boys. And um, Gabe's a cool guy. Got to hang out with him. And I don't know him as well, but got to hang out with him this past fall. Love that guy. So you guys are really fortunate. Uh, my wife was really disappointed. She and my kids were not able to come. She had to lead worship back at Restoration Church. But uh, they send their greetings from Philadelphia. So let's Open up in prayer and get started today. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you are among us this morning. We ask that you would open up our hearts, open up our ears, open up our eyes to hear something new from you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So I want to share with you one of my favorite stories about Jesus today, and it comes from John chapter 9. And in this story, we have Jesus and his disciples walking down the street. And as they're walking down the street one day, they come across a blind man. And this man wasn't just a regular blind man who uh, had cataracts or some degenerative disease. He was a man, as the text says, was blind from birth, right? He's never seen a thing before. And Jesus and his disciples, they stop and they see this guy who's there begging for money. And they have a theological discussion asking, why is this guy blind? Why was he born blind? After having this conversation, Jesus walks over to the blind man. He bends over in front of him, and he begins spitting on the ground right in front of this poor guy. And instead of leaving his spit there, instead of covering his spit, instead of kicking it away, Jesus reaches down and does the unthinkable and begins touching his own spit. And he takes that spit, and he starts rubbing it into the ground, making a little spit mud pie, right? And he scoops up this mud into his hand, and his disciples are looking, thinking, what is he about to do with this mud? And he reaches over to this poor blind guy and rubs this spit mud right into the guy's eyes, bends over, says in his ear, you might want to go wash your face now. Go ahead and wash your face. I think the guy was probably going to wash his face anyway, right? (laughs) So the man goes over to a pool, and he starts washing his face. And he takes some water, and he, he rubs it over his eyes, and he does this a few times. And after rinsing his face a few times, he notices something different. As his hands come down, his eyes open, and for the very first time in his life, he can see. So the people who saw him next were confused, right? They're skeptical because remember, he was blind. And if you were disabled or blind in that culture, there were no social safety nets. So you were a beggar most of the time. Unless someone else was going to take care of you, you were a beggar. So they knew this guy. The townspeople knew who this blind guy was. But all of a sudden, he's walking around and he can see. They're very skeptical. They're very confused. So they say, well, maybe it's not him. Maybe it's just someone who looks like him. Maybe it's not really the guy we remember. And he's sitting there saying, no, it's really me. I'm the blind guy you guys know. Some guy named Jesus came and healed me. This is very confusing to everyone. So they said, we got to bring this to the religious leaders. And the religious leaders at that time were the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were a group of Jewish teachers who you're probably familiar with for extrapolating on God's law and creating a ton of man-made rules that they burdened the Jewish people with, right? And one of the Things, for example, that they did was 
You couldn't work on the Sabbath. That's one of God's laws. It's a good law. You don't work on the Sabbath. You take a break, ten, spend some time worshiping. Well, they took that to the extreme. So, for example, if you're a woman, you were not allowed to look in a mirror on the Sabbath because you might be tempted to pluck a gray hair, and that would be considered work, and you would be in sin, right? So they had a million different things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath because it was considered work. So they bring this man to the Pharisees, and they tell him the story of what had happened. And the Pharisees were not happy about this miracle that occurred because this day happened to be a Sabbath. And not only was it a sin that Jesus made mud on a Sabbath, seriously, because that was considered work, but beyond that, he had the audacity to heal someone on the Sabbath. Never mind that this was a miracle. Never mind what that meant. They were concerned that Jesus was a sinner because he healed someone on the Sabbath. So they bring this blind guy in who was once blind, who's now healed, and they try to get him to agree with them. They say, isn't this guy Jesus a sinner for healing you? Isn't this terrible what he's done? And obviously the guy can't go on board. He doesn't want any problems, so he just says, listen, all I know is I was once blind, but now I can see. Amen. I was once blind, and now I see. So what did they do to this guy? They, they kicked him out of the synagogue, right? They removed him from the place of worship. They separated him from the scriptures, and they excommunicated him from the people of God. You see, the Pharisees acted like they were the gatekeepers to heaven, right? They thought they held the keys to the kingdom. They wanted to decide who was in and who was out. So after this happens, it kicks the guy out. Jesus goes to the guy and he tells him, I'm the Messiah. That's who I am. I'm the Lord. The guy calls him Lord, worship him, worships him. And Jesus turns around and he says the following. Join with me, John chapter 10. We're going to first look at just verses 1 through 5. Okay. 1 through 5. I assure you, Anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the door, but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The doorkeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they recognize his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead... They will run away from him because they don't recognize the voice of the strangers. Let me give you a little bit of background here why we're talking about this. But before I can even explain why we're talking about sheep and shepherds, I want to give you an understanding of what sheep and shepherd culture looked like 2,000 years ago in the uh, Middle East. When we think of any, anyone country here, anyone from the country? Okay. All right. Well, you, someone's probably driven through the country and you've seen cows and sheep <laughs> and goats and when you think of a sheep pen, you don't think of something major. You think of a, a fence, like a wooden fence or a little electrical fence, something minimal that keeps a sheep from getting out, which doesn't take a whole lot, right? It's, it's just a, a minimal fence structure. That's what you're, we're used to. That's not what a sheep pen looked like in this culture. In this culture, a sheep pen was not only designed to keep sheep from getting out, but it was designed to keep robbers and wolves and predators from getting inside. So this was a massive structure with huge stone walls, and there was only one way in and one way out, and that was a doorway. There was one open doorway, right? And, and this wasn't just a small pen that you would have in your side yard either. 
This was a community pen. So you would have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sheep in this massive structure that looked like a castle. And in that, you would house the sheep for all the shepherds in the community, right? And there was one person who was in charge of overseeing this, and this was a doorkeeper. This guy was like a bouncer or a bodyguard. He would stand in front of this doorway, and he decided who got in and who got out, right? He let the shepherds into the sheep. So he had a very important job because he was responsible for the safety of all the shepherds in the community, right? So the doorkeeper stood there, and he had to know all the different shepherds and all their different hired help and all the different people who may come, and he would vet them. They would come to the door, and he would check them out, make sure they were legit, see if he knew them. And when they were, he would move out of the way and let them in. And now the shepherd was inside of this pen, and he was looking at these hundreds of sheep. And he had two things he had to do. One, he had to figure out which sheep were his. And two, how could he possibly get his sheep to separate from the rest of the flock? When I first read this, I thought that sounded like a big challenge. Apparently, it was not. It was actually the easiest part of all. All he had to do was call them. He would call his sheep because shepherds all had their own call, their own sound, their own noise, whatever it is that they would make. And when their sheep heard it from their shepherd's voice, they would know to separate from the rest of the flock and follow him out to pasture, right? And some shepherds, as Jesus said, even knew their sheep by name. So they would actually call them out by name and they would follow Remember what else Jesus said? He said that robbers would try to come in the wrong way, right? Robbers would try to jump over the fence. They would climb the fence and try to steal sheep to get out. That's one way to do it. But there was a more cunning way, a more slick way. Some robbers would try to get sheep. And this is what they would do. They would wait around the corner of this massive sheep pen. And they would hang out there all day. And they would listen. And when a shepherd came to get his sheep, they would listen for the call he would make. That would get his sheep to come, and they'd remember that. And the next day, they would come back, disguised as a shepherd, disguised as a hired hand, and they'd get through the gatekeeper somehow, and then all they had to do was remember that call. They would say the call, and guess what would happen? Nothing. Actually, not nothing. Not only would the sheep not follow this stranger, they would actually run the other direction. They would actually cower and scatter because they knew If they heard a noise, a call, that was not from their shepherd's voice, then they were in danger. And when the doorkeeper saw the sheep respond this way, he knew that he was dealing with a thief. So why did Jesus say these things? Why are we talking about this? Well, remember the context, right? Jesus just saw a man get kicked out of the synagogue after being healed. So Jesus goes on to talk about sheep and shepherds. You're confused. I'm confused. The original audience was also confused, right? So Jesus did hear what he had to do often, and that's explain himself a little bit more. So look with me, John chapter 10, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 10. All right, read along with me. Jesus gave them this illustration, but they did not understand what he was telling them. So Jesus said again, I assure you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and kill and to destroy. I have come so that they may have life 
and have it in abundance. So here Jesus gives us a little more understanding of what he's talking about, right? It's an illustration. So let's decode who these characters are in the illustration real quick before we jump in. So we have the sheep. Any guess what sheep represent? Who are sheep? Right, sheep are people. Sheep are people, good. And who is a shepherd? Yes, but we'll get to that. So for now, it's just God, right? Y'all are too smart. All right. So we have the sheep or people. The shepherd is God. And the sheep pen is, you know, in that time would have been Judaism. But that means if you're in the sheep pen, you're within God's people. You're in God's presence. You're in God's place. Then we have thieves and robbers. Now, at that time, it would have been Pharisees. But it could be any false teachers before or after Jesus. Any false teacher is... A robber, right? There's someone who's sneaking in, right? They say they're, they're, they're the way to God, but they're not. They want to destroy. And then we have the door, and, and the door is Jesus in this, right? He says, I am the door, right? Jesus gives access to God, right? And his followers know his voice, and they follow his voice. So the question is, so what? We have all this information. We had some background. We had some decoding. We had this. So what? What difference does this make? And why does it matter that Jesus is the door? If you're taking notes today, here's my big idea. (laughs) Is that funny? (laughs) All right. Because Jesus is the door, one, he's your way in. Two, he's your way out. And three, he's your way home. Because Jesus is the door, he's your way in. He's your way out, and he's your way home. Point one, he's your way in. If you were to pay really careful attention to this passage, you would notice that Jesus is actually talking about three different types of doors. He's not talking about three doors. There's only one door, but he's talking about three different functions of the same door when he's describing this sheep pen. And the first one, which is in verses 1 and 2, is an entrance. He describes the door as being an entrance, as an entryway, as a way in. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. I assure you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the door, but climbs in some other way is a thief and robber. The one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. So what does Jesus mean when he's talking about entering? Right? What is he talking about? To the original audience, right, Jesus was talking about the Jewish religion. The Jews at that time, they were God's people at that time. So talking about being in the sheep pen means being on the inside with God, being, being, being in the right religion, in the right faith, having access to God, having access to God's people. And that's what so many people then, like the blind men, were after. They wanted to be on the inside, right? They wanted to have access to God. They wanted to know what was true. They wanted to be brought in they wanted to be on the inside but they were being kept on the outside right that's we saw with the pharisees we had people who were standing there deciding who were coming in and who were going out but at the end of the day we have people who are standing there who all say i want to be in and i tell you this morning that i don't think much has changed because people still want to be on the inside if you spend any time anywhere, talking to people, going online, watching, you know, the weird corners of YouTube, if you're ever there, you find out that people want some deep understanding, right? People want some divine knowledge. People want some kind of purpose, right? People want something worth dying for. 
They want to be part of something bigger than they are. People want to believe in God. Whether they say or not, they do want there to be a God. They want to have access to God. And whoever this God is, they want to be on the inside with that God. They want to be brought in to whatever that God is up to. C.S. Lewis, a long time ago, said it like this. Apparently then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing, is to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off. To be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside. Church, we are born with a hunger and a thirst for God. But because of our rebellion, because of our sin, we have been cast out of God's presence. We've been set on the outside. We are placed on the outside. And whether we realize it or not, we are all just trying to claw our way back in. We are all trying to find our way back in to the inside of God's presence. And there is an infinite number of people, of causes, communities, families, gangs, clubs, and anything else that gives you the impression that they can fill the desire to get you back on the inside to scratch that divine itch that you can be back on the inside of something from which you feel cut off. If I could just be part of something big, if I could just feel needed, if I could just make a difference, right, maybe I'll feel better, right? But beyond that, there are those like the Pharisees in our culture who explicitly claim they can give you access to the inside, right? They have a remedy for your spiritual crisis, if you could just go to their seminar, right, right? They will guide you to a place of freedom, but you got to go to their three-day retreat. They will give you hope if you read their book, and they will restore your health if you can pay them enough money. We have a million different voices claiming to be the door to the inside. Jesus said it 2,000 years ago, and he's saying it again today, I am the door, right? Because Jesus is your door, he's your way in. He's your way to the inside. He's the one who gives you access to God, and he has the remedy for your hunger for God. And Jesus can make this claim because Jesus is the only one who dealt with the sin problem that got us kicked out of God's presence in the first place, right? Because Jesus died for your sins and for my sins, and because he didn't stay dead, but he got up from the grave, right? He has proven that he has the right to say he is the door. He's your access to God. He's your way in. So to my Christians in the room, are you still living as if you're aimlessly seeking for purpose or some type of fulfillment? Are you still grasping at straws? to find some type of pleasure like your friends and your coworkers? Do you realize that you've been brought in? That you're on the inside? That you have the answer? And if so, what should this look like for you? To my non-Christians, if you're in the room, serious question, how have you sought to find fulfillment in your life? Not judging, just asking. What have you sought after to find purpose? And another question, have you let Fake Christians, messy churches, and perverse pastors tarnish your view of who Jesus is. Jesus has changed the trajectory of world history. 
Whether you like him or not, you can't argue that fact. Jesus has changed the trajectory of world history. And I'm telling you, he can change the trajectory of your life. He can bring you on the inside because he is the door. That's our first point. Because Jesus is the door, he's your way in. Now, remember, I said we're talking about three different types of doors here, right? So, first of all, Jesus is the way into the sheep pen, but Jesus is also the way out of the sheep pen, right? That's how doors normally work. You have a way in, you have a way out, right? Read with me verses 3 and 4. The doorkeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all of his own outside... He goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they recognize his voice. I'll keep going. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't recognize the voice of strangers. Now, the sheep spent their nights in this pen, right? This safe fortress, right? That's where they spent their nights. But they didn't spend all their time in there, right? Because different times throughout the day, like I said, the shepherd would come by. He would call out a sheep and he would take them out into pasture. And you have these beautiful images, right, of, of, of sheep um, eating grass and frolicking through the meadows and drinking by the, what do they go, babbling brook or something like that, right? All these nice images. But actually, going out to pasture was the most dangerous thing a sheep could ever do because a sheep, come on, they don't have a lot of defense mechanisms, right? They don't have stingers or, or darts or anything that comes out of them. A sheep, if something wants to get a sheep, it's going to get a sheep, right? And sheep knew this. That's why they liked being in uh, where all the uh, walls were amongst other sheep, right? But this was actually a very dangerous place for sheep because as you're out in pasture, you have nothing protecting you. Wolves, robbers, anything in the blink of an eye could come, snatch up, attack, kill the sheep. But the shepherd led his sheep out to pasture. And what he did was really interesting because when he called them out and they initially came out of the pen, he didn't stop talking at that point. He actually continued to talk to his sheep as they were out in pasture throughout the day, as they followed him. And the sheep would focus on the sound of the shepherd's voice. And they would listen to his words. They would meditate on what he was saying. And they knew that they were safe. And even though they may hear growls or false voices from other fake shepherds, they would stay focused on the voice of their shepherd. And they would continue forward because they knew if they followed him, he would be safe. Because if you know Psalm 23, what comforts sheep? The rod and the staff, right? Now, we know a rod was like a big hook cane that, that a, a shepherd would use to scoop sheep out if they were stuck in a precarious position. But a staff was like a bow staff, like something you might see a ninja use, right? And, and shepherds, regardless of what image you may have of them from nativity scenes, were actually very agile people. They were on their feet a lot. They had this big bow staff that they were very good with. And the sheep knew that if something was going to attack them, it would have to get through their shepherd who, who, who had this weapon with him. And getting through that wasn't very likely. They were very safe with their shepherd. So in telling this story, Jesus wasn't just telling the Jewish people or people in general to come and be on the inside. He's access to the inside. He, he grants people entrance to the inside with God. But he was also calling the Jewish people to exit a few doors and to leave some of their religious mess behind them. And Jesus is continuing to call us out today because church, if you were on the inside with God, if you've been brought in, then you need to be on the outside of a lot of things. Amen? Right. 
Let me ask you a few questions. Do you define your standing with God based on how well you're doing? Do you, meet your, do you have a checklist you go through every week or every day and say, I feel pretty good in my relationship with God because I did this, 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 and this. Jesus is calling you out of a religious system that says you can earn your way to God. Do you find yourself caught up with the allure of money, fame, success? Jesus is calling you out of a society that tramples over other people to get to the top. Do you continue with those people that you know are pulling you down? Jesus is calling you out of relationships that starve your spirit. And are you desperate for others to view you and your family in a certain way? Jesus is calling you out of a life of falsehood and burden. I could go on all day, and I know it is scary to leave the sheep pen. I know it's scary to leave what we know. I know it's scary to continue into vulnerable territory, right? But our shepherd doesn't stop talking to us, right? If you know the words of Jesus and you know how to listen to his spirit, if you know how to spend time with his people, which you all have community here, you all got small groups, if you're in relationship with his people, if you're under the teaching of his word, as you're growing and listening to his spirit, as you're meditating on the scripture, you will better know how to discern his voice, And you will be all the more able to discern false voices that I promise you are seeking to destroy you, whether you know it or not. My big idea, because Jesus is the door, he's your way in, right? But he's also your way out. He's your way in. He can bring you into God, but he can also bring bring you out of all the mess that you're in. He can also bring you out of everything you're clinging to that you think may be good even, right? We don't do these things because we have evil intentions. We do these things because we're messy, because some of us are crazy, right? I'm crazy. I'm messy. I know that. So Jesus has to call me out of a lot of things in the same way he's calling me in to a place, right? He's your way in and he's your way out. Now, remember we said we're talking about three doors here, right? Three functions of a door. He's your way in. He's your way out. Doors don't normally have a third function, do they, right? Unless they're a portal, right, into another galaxy or something, or unless there's a trapdoor situation. Normally, doors have two functions. So how is it that Jesus says there is a third door? How is there a third way Jesus describes himself as the door? Look at me, verses 6 through 10. One second. Actually, uh, verse 7. Go ahead, verse 7. I assure you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. My last point is he's your way home. Jesus again says he's the door, but he doesn't just stop there by saying he's a door into God or saying that he's a door out of the world. He says here that he's a door to salvation, that he's the door to another world, right? He's the door to salvation. He says if you go through him, what's it? You will be saved And you will have life, and you will have life in abundance. Jesus has now taken his claims to the next level. 
Jesus has just gone a little further than a good religious teacher would go. Jesus has now pushed the boundary further than a wise prophet would do. And he is definitely saying more than someone would say on a weekend spiritual retreat, right? Jesus is taking his claims to the next level because he is promising salvation. And he is promising abundant life. He is saying things that only God can Say And the question is, how can Jesus possibly make these claims? How can he possibly make such strong, powerful, exclusive statements about himself? Let's remember we said earlier, right? In this story, God is a shepherd, right? Jesus is the door. God is a shepherd. Jesus is the door, right? So Jesus, as a door, gives access to God, who is the shepherd, right? Maybe if we look in this a little further, if we understand this culture, this background, this, this imagery a little better, we will have a better understanding of how he can make these claims. Remember, the sheep pen, what is it? A large walled structure with one, one opening, right? One way in, one way out. There's one door here. And as I said, a doorkeeper stood guard of this all day long as, as shepherds and sheep came in and out. He stood guard there all day long. But what I didn't tell you was what happened at night because this doorkeeper did not work a 24-hour shift, right? He went home to his wife or whoever, and at that time, there was a vacancy in this space, right? Who was guarding the door? Because there wasn't actually a door, right? It's, a, it's an opening. It's a door opening. Who is then acting as the door in this situation? Well, at night, what the shepherd would do is he would lay down and curl up in that doorway, and he would sleep in the doorway, and he would spend the night as the door. Do you see this? The shepherd became the door. The door was the shepherd. In this passage, door and shepherd are not two different roles, because we said, right? The door is Jesus. The shepherd is God. We learn here that, guess what? The shepherd became the door, they were one and the same, and the original audience would have understood this because this was a normal practice they saw here. And in case we didn't get it, in case we didn't understand this, if you look ahead to verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, right? I am the good shepherd. So throughout this passage, we have seen that Jesus is the door that gives access to the shepherd who is God, but now it all makes sense. Jesus offers access to God because Jesus is God. Only the shepherd can give access to himself. It is because Jesus is also the shepherd, that he's not just the door, but he's also the shepherd, that he can offer us access to God, that he can offer us salvation, and he can offer us abundant life. Because since Jesus is the door. He's your way in, like I said. He's your way out, but he's also your way home. So the question is, what do I mean by your way home when I say he's your way home? Earlier I said that everyone wants, deep down, for there to be a God. They want to, deep down, have access to this God and be on the inside with this God. But everyone also wants to live forever, right? 
Everyone also wants all rights to be made wrong. Everyone also wants perfect justice and perfect peace and perfect love to exist. And everyone has these ideas and these dreams about a place that may really exist that's like that. And the reason why we desire these things, the reason why deep down we feel this need, if you've ever had to bury someone or if you've ever had some some horrible thing happen in your life, some terrible tragedy beyond the, the grief, you get this sense that this isn't right. This doesn't make sense. This isn't supposed to happen. We're not supposed to die. Well, the reason why we feel this way is because that's the way things were intended to be, right? That's what we were designed for. We weren't designed to live in a messed up world the way things are. We were designed for eternity. One writer said this, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. God, like I said, God's plan was not to create a messed up world that we see around us, right? God's plan was to create a perfect world. But when mankind sinned, when we fell away from God, a curse was placed on the land. A curse was placed on the plants and the animals and the earth and on us And every one of us feels this curse. Every one of us feels this curse. And deep down, in different ways we express this, we all desire for this curse to be lifted because we have some distant, cosmic, divine memory of some time long ago that we can't put our finger on that we were made for something different, that everything around us should look different, that things should be different, that the earth should act differently, that disease and famine and extinction and and all these things just aren't right. They just don't make sense. It's not supposed to be that way. Paul says in Romans 8, he says it like this, the whole creation waits eagerly for the sons of God to be revealed And get this, all of creation is groaning in labor pains to be set free from this bondage. There's a curse, and it has us all in bondage. The trees are in bondage. People are in bondage. Everything is in bondage because this curse has been placed over the land. Jesus is offering us more than some new morals, right? Some new type of spirituality, Jesus is offering us salvation, and Jesus is offering us eternity. Because get this, when Jesus died and he was on that cross, a lot of things happened. If you read one of the accounts, right, that the, the tombs were broken open and, and people came up from the dead and began walking around, right? Earthquakes happened, and, and the veil in the temple was torn open. And in that moment, this curse that's been over all of us, was broken. The curse was not yet lifted, but the curse was broken. And when Jesus died and rose again, he initiated this new kingdom, this new world that he was establishing, where one day heaven will be brought to earth. That's where you see these beautiful images, Isaiah 11 and Micah 4 and Revelation, all these things of this one day, this new world will exist where heaven will be brought down to earth and everything will be made right. But this process is not completed yet, right? 
We're not there. Look around. Turn on news. We are not there yet. But Jesus invites us to join him now as he is in the process of renewing the world, starting with individuals. And Jesus can offer abundant life to us in the way that he does here because in the same way that he is making creation new, he can make you new as well. And one day, when this process is finally complete, and creation is renewed entirely, you will be made completely new in your entirety and you will reign on this new earth with Christ forever and you will finally be home. So to my Christians, did you need this reminder today? Have you forgotten this epic story you've been brought into? <laughs> Do we get so, so distracted with every little thing that happens throughout the day, which are legitimate things, that we completely forget about this identity, this kingdom, this, this cosmic reign that we've been brought into? Did you forget that the Jesus you serve is the same God who created you? And he's a good shepherd. And the good shepherd knows the names of his sheep. And if you feel forgotten today, you are not forgotten. He does not forget. When we are out to pasture, when we are following him, there are a lot of obstacles. There are a lot of things in our way. There are a lot of things out to get us. His voice is still calling. How will you choose to tune into his message? How will you choose to tune into his words? He is still there. He has not forgotten you. He wants you to trust him today and to know that you are still his. He hasn't gone anywhere. Regardless of what you feel, regardless of how crappy you may feel, regardless of how difficult things may be for you, your relationship with Jesus is that of a legal transaction. You cannot, and it cannot be undone. Right? You've been adopted. He has not forgotten you. And to my non-Christians, this is not just a call for you to join some church, to sign up for a study, or to change your ways. This is an offer for you to get your ticket home. This is an offer for you to get your ticket home. And this is scary, this is confusing, and this is a major decision. But I pray if you don't know Jesus today, you wouldn't wait another day. There are plenty of questions to be asked. I still have questions. We all have questions. Don't let your questions become a hurdle to getting your ticket home to following Jesus. And there are very competent, capable people at this church you know, uh, I know many of them who would be glad to sit down with you and to work through any of the issues and questions that you have. But don't wait another moment. Follow him today. So as we close, because Jesus is the door, he's your way in, he's your way out, and he's your way home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the example you've given us in Jesus. More than that, we're thankful for Jesus who has offered himself for us, God. We're grateful that the God we serve was humble enough to come down and become a man, to walk on this messy planet, to let himself be murdered by humans, the very ones he created, and to rise from the dead, also that we could know him, God. We pray that if anyone in this room does not know Jesus today, you will pull them to yourselves. In his name we pray, amen. amen. 2,000 years ago, on the night before Jesus died, 
he was hanging out with his disciples, right? And they were, they were having the Passover meal. And Jesus took some ordinary bread and some ordinary wine, and he said, listen, guys, I'm not going to be here much longer. They're going to kill me. But you're going to continue on this mission. And every time you all come together, I want you to take some bread and take some wine. And I want you to remember that this bread represents my body. It, it, my body is going to be broken for you. And this blood, I mean, this wine represents my blood, which will be shed for you. And whenever you come together, I want you to recenter yourselves around this. Remember what I've done. Remember what I'm doing. And ultimately, remember what I will do. So.